I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hi, everybody. Some of you may remember my next guest. I was actually a guest on her podcast, Patient Stories, where I talked about our journey to a diagnosis with Ford. I've mentioned before that podcasts play a huge part in finding community and have also been a way to educate myself. I loved Eleanor's mission with her podcast, and I also kind of wanted to add something more when you Google CTNNB1. So if you haven't yet, go take a listen to our episode on her podcast. It's episode 21. So I emailed her a few months later after we recorded our episode, and I asked her for some tips as I had finally felt ready to get my podcast off the ground. And she was so gracious with all of the wisdom that she shared. We cover some interesting stuff in our conversation, and I'm so excited to get her expertise on the subject of genetic counseling. I feel like so far in my journey through the rare disease world, genetic counselors are one of the first warm hugs I received. Maybe not literally, but it's one of the first appointments that I felt warmth from. I would definitely hug Eleanor, for sure. Here's my chat with Eleanor Griffith, genetic counselor and founder of Gray Genetics. Hi, Eleanor. How are you? Great. Hi, Ashie. I'm so excited to talk to you again. You know, we are kind of cross podcasting right now. Exactly. Trying out that crossover podcast effort. (laughs) Yes. If you haven't heard my episode on uh, patient stories with Eleanor, I'll link it in my show uh, where I shared a little bit about finding Ford's diagnosis to CTNNB1. So check it out for sure. Eleanor is so amazing. Eleanor, why don't you just start by kind of telling us what a genetic counselor does, their role in our lives as parents, and maybe how you started Gray Genetics. Yeah. So genetic counselors, what we do depends a lot on the setting that we work in. In terms of like a pediatric setting, like I think most of your listeners, and which are probably mostly parents with kids with special needs and possibly genetic diagnoses, often we're interacting with patients when they make an appointment and see a medical geneticist at a hospital and genetic counselors will often work with a medical geneticist as part of a team. How that relationship actually goes is a little bit different in each center. I've never worked in pediatric genetics really. Like my exposure has really been like more so through things like patient stories and like learning from patients from you, (laughs) which has been like really interesting. But you know, like when I was in school, we, we all do different rotations. So for instance, the pediatric genetics rotation I did the way they had it set up at this particular hospital, Columbia University, it was a pretty good good setup and I think probably not really uncommon setup from other places where maybe they have like six or seven genetic counselors and they'll have one medical geneticist. 
So the genetic counselor is going to do most of the appointment with the family in terms of getting information, explaining testing options to them, going over testing results, and the medical geneticist is going to come in for a portion of that to do a physical exam to kind of touch base. But the genetic counselor is doing most of the appointment to kind of make the best use of the medical geneticist time too. Right. So you do all the research on said diagnosis and then you kind of deal with the patient sort of advocacy part. Yeah. And some centers, you know, you'd you'd see like the medical geneticist and the genetic counselor sitting in the room together the whole time, too. So it does really vary. But usually the genetic counselor is doing more of that grunt work (laughs) and usually doing doing more of talking to the patients also, although, you know, it does really vary. And often there'll be... It depends on the condition in the center, but I think it's pretty common for there to be an annual follow-up appointment. So often genetics will be kind of your your main home, and then they'll help with figuring out like, okay, like based on your diagnosis, which specialist do you need to see? Like, are you seeing all these? Like, let's make sure you have all your appointments down, you know, in terms of getting special services. It might not be them directly, but let's make sure you get to see a social worker at the hospital who can help you navigate that. So I'm not a sports person, but they can be like the quarterback. (laughs) Totally, totally. What people will say. (laughs) Yeah, I've only met two of you so far, but I can also see there's like more of a nurturing side to your profession. Yeah. Which is very important. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's the hard thing about pediatric genetics for a genetic counselor. I think one reason I haven't worked in that is like you have less autonomy because you're working with a medical geneticist. But like what's really wonderful about working in pediatric genetics is it's like often you get to work with families over time. And that can be really fulfilling because instead of just having that one appointment, you know, hopefully there there is a counseling component and it does feel nurturing. But you know, you you get to see like next year, like how are things going, you know, and like, is there any new research? Are there any new tests, anything that should be recommended? Should we be looking at anything different? You know, and often it's just like, okay, you know, it might be a brief appointment. It seems like you're pretty on track, but just that check-in. Yes. You're reminding me that I actually need to schedule my check-in. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the check-in really prompts to, it'd be great if our healthcare system worked differently and you could automatically get pushed out like different updates, but you know, it helps to see, to see a kid in person, to see how they're doing. And then like making that appointment also prompts the genetic counselor and geneticist to actually like review your case and be like, oh, is this what we said then? Is this what we would say now? Or is there something else that we should look at? So I see on Facebook a lot in a lot of my parent groups, parents who don't have a diagnosis yet for their kid, who are pretty hesitant to even think about going to the next step, whether it's just a lot of work or whether they think a diagnosis won't change anything about their daily life. Like if there are any disadvantages to having a genetic testing, what would you say to those parents who are a little hesitant to, you know, seeking out your services? It would really depend on if like if I were talking to someone who felt that way, like I'd really want to explore where that comes from, because I feel like that could be really different for different people. And it might be based on something that's absolutely true. And it might just be based on a misconception. But I think, you know, for everything in life that has an advantage, there is a disadvantage. (laughs) So that's also true with genetic testing. And I think the, the potential disadvantages can vary a lot depending on the reason for testing and the specifics of a situation. In genetic testing more broadly, for instance, someone's thinking about genetic testing related to early onset Alzheimer's disease or 
Huntington's disease or even hereditary cancer susceptibility, you know, a disadvantage could be like, well, what are the potential implications for life insurance or long-term disability insurance in a prenatal setting? And in a, you know, and, and some of those can be more theoretical, you know, especially when it comes to cancer susceptibility. But, you know, they're, they're like legitimate things to think about. And like, sometimes people are like, well, I want to do it, but I want to do things in a certain order. I was thinking of getting life insurance or long-term disability insurance anyway, long-term care insurance. I'm going to do that now before I do any testing because there's not, you know, you're not necessarily going to be asked when you go to apply for a policy. There's no legislation saying that you can't be asked. So it's just kind of a gray area. In a prenatal setting, um, testing, I think for some people, you know, it's really kind of personality dependent. Some people are like, the more information, the better. Knowledge is, in, is power. I'm able to make informed decisions. And for other people, they're like, why in the world would I want this information? <laughs> it's not going to tr- change anything. It's going to stress me out. So that really changes. Pediatrics, you know, when you have a child with a certain condition is actually where, from my perspective, with kind of that, the reference point of those other areas of genetics, pediatrics is really where I see the fewest disadvantages to getting a diagnosis. Like you already have a child who has special needs, who might have developmental delay, there's already things going on. So that's, you know, a diagnosis probably isn't going to change, you know, they're not going to be like, denied insurance related to a genetic testing diagnosis, for instance. But on the other hand, a genetic diagnosis could actually help them qualify for services like more easily than they might otherwise. But I think, you know, it can be more frustrating to not get a genetic diagnosis than to actually get one when you do genetic testing. And for kids that do like whole exome sequencing that's become more common, you know, maybe one third of the time we get a diagnosis for someone, which in genetics like that seems really high to us. We're like, that's wonderful. But if if you're kind of coming at it from a perspective of thinking that you're going to get a diagnosis, it's like two thirds of the time you're told like, we're not sure. (laughs) Wow. I did not know that. I thought that if you were going to be lucky enough to have a West test, you were pretty much almost guaranteed that they were going to find something. But you're right. There's still so much unknown. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those numbers will probably change a little bit. And that's kind of like those. I've seen those numbers in several studies, but it's kind of like, we'll look at the group of kids. Like the more you have severe developmental delay, the more you have things going on with multiple systems, probably the more likely it is that you're going to get a diagnosis. But yeah, so I think that can be something that's that's rough for people to not get that. I could see like one potential disadvantage and reason people could hesitate is the idea of a label. So, you know, a label can be a diagnosis, can be something that helps you find community that can provide some direction for medical management. But some people, and you know, it depends like what's going on with your kid, but especially if you have something where you're kind of in between and you're like, I I think there might be developmental delay, but maybe they're just kind of slow and maybe they're going to catch up. And, you know, it's not something where there's obviously serious issues going on. It can be hard to get that diagnosis and to just kind of have to accept that maybe your child is not going to develop typically. And then I think with a lot of diagnoses, the phenotype, like in terms of what you can expect is pretty broad, like with a condition like what Ford has when it's more rare, it's just like really hard to know. So that can be hard to have that uncertainty, even if it's a little bit less uncertain than with no diagnosis. But then there's other conditions, like let's say if you have something like Turner syndrome, which is like 
a pretty common chromosome problem where like typically, you know, you're born a female, but instead of 46XX, the karyotype is 45X. But, you know, some people you'd never notice anything and like maybe they're a little shorter and then they have issues with fertility and other people have like major issues with like their heart and their kidneys. And so it can be hard when you have that label and it's so broad that you're not necessarily going to, going to relate to everyone who kind of falls under that umbrella. Sure. The spectrum thing as usual. I found for me, um, before we got a diagnosis, everyone was very adamant about not putting a label on forward. And I just kind of, uh, really changed my thought on how I interpret label. Mm. Uh, And I didn't think about it in terms of this is how someone's going to judge my son rather, you know, more like this is the community that I'm going to find. And this is a direction that I can go. And these are a bunch of symptoms that I can group together. And I'm grateful for the label, whatever anyone wants to call it. Yeah. And I mean, I think and always like we all have like multiple labels that make sense for us probably, or just like multiple roles. Like someone can be like a wife, a mother, a patient. And like, sometimes we're sloppy in genetics in terms of, you know, like using diagnoses, you know, but like CT in and B1 patients, but really it's like a patient who has X because this is like one thing about a patient. So like that label says one thing about Ford and then, you know, a lot of other things about Ford that are have, that are very Ford like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so So how, if at all, has your job changed since like the boom in genetic testing, you know, with it becoming more accessible, more affordable, more talked about? uh, Has anything has anything shifted in the last few years for you at work? Yeah, so I think so for me. I graduated um, people with a, like a genetic counseling degree. It's a two-year master's program. So I graduated in 2011. So I definitely, I'm, in that sense, I'm kind of a newer genetic counselor. I think some of those changes were starting as I was graduating or starting to pick up. So I definitely haven't seen changes the way people have who've been in the field for like 30 years. Um, I've also jumped around to different practice settings. So I think it's like harder to see kind of like a change because the changes affect all different settings differently. But overall, you know, I think I'm just seeing like a lot more genetic testing is driven by sales and marketing. (laughs) Interesting. And there's just so much more direct to consumer testing, which again is driven by sales and marketing. You're talking about like the familial DNA stuff. Like the the one one two three whatever they or are twenty twenty three and me twenty three and me yeah it's it's funny because um yeah so twenty three and me would be you know someone who hasn't had a clinical reason for genetic testing like that might be why they've heard of genetic testing almost like that's kind of like their go to reference point so there's definitely that explosion of direct to consumer testing you know tied to a lot of that i think is is influenced by people are really interested in ancestry testing and then like throw in some health stuff which like mostly is not very worthwhile but occasionally you find something where you're like did i want to know that <laughs> that's really valuable <laughs> or like actually this test is wrong because it wasn't a very good quality test and like Marketing, you know, is necessarily like a good marketing, like makes things like simple and clear, um, which genetics really isn't. <laughs> so usually it's it gives people like some wrong ideas or some false sense of clarity or confidence. So it, it's definitely like made things murkier that way. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely been glamorized. Yeah, that too. And 23andMe has been pretty brilliant in making genetics seem like accessible and, and fun, you know, which genetic counseling has never succeeded in doing. <laughs> 
I wonder if there's a real scientist looking at their data or if it's just put in this computer with all these formulas and printed out. So they have, I mean, the 23andMe has like good science behind what they what they do. And even like the the copy that they have, if you actually do their test and look at their website, like there is, it's really well done. But I think, you know, then their marketing is all about like, like you said, it's glamorized and it looks really fun and it kind of belies that some of this information is really serious. And then, you know, it's like, oh, we do some testing related to breast cancer risk, but it's like, well, they test for three variants related to over three changes in the BRCA genes, whereas there are over 3,000 changes in the BRCA genes. (laughs) So, and all of this is in the fine print, but when you're kind of like clicking around on the internet, like who's, who's reading the fine print? Like, I don't, I don't read the fine print. You're just like, sounds good. You know, I, I guess I'm negative. So that's like marketing, definitely direct consumer testing and then sales and marketing driven, just even in terms of what's going on in doctor's offices. And I think some of that, like, sales reps from different commercial genetic testing laboratories are just in doctor's offices like all the time um, or trying to get in there all the time. You know, some doctor C reps, some don't. And some of those sales reps are actually providing like really helpful genetics education to, to physicians and helping them like understand the processes and how this can be so important to patient care and influence their diagnosis. So some of that is really positive, but it's still, you know, it's coming from a commercial angle and like we live in a capitalist society and like we're going to push things where there's like a profit incentive, <laughs> yes. you know, so so I think a lot of that has actually is positive. You have more patients who are being identified or getting offered testing and a lab often, you know, they're making enough money to have like the internal customer service resources to deal with like the nightmare of insurance and to help with coverage. So a lot of that's really good, but, you know, a lab is not really going to put money or energy toward things that don't contribute to the goal of making profits. So they're not going to focus a lot on the limitations of testing or really having a deep understanding of your test results or how important it is to share test results with family members or who you need to be connected to like after the fact. And that's, that's not all on them at all, but it's just test results are only helpful to the extent that you understand. Like anecdotally, there's always lots of cases of people with test results and they misunderstood the results. So they had inappropriate surgeries or like the ball was dropped. Like we knew this, but you know, the next step wasn't taken because there's really nothing else kind of incentivizing people to kind of take that next step. And doctors are just so, you know, so squeezed, have so, so little time with patients. I think if anything I like out of that is that there are people talking to doctors about genetic testing because I see a lot in my groups of parents whose doctors have never brought it up and moms are like, why don't you get a West test? And they're like, what's a West test? And we're like, how has your doctor not said that? Your kid can't walk and he's three. Yeah. And I don't know, like I worked for a hereditary cancer testing laboratory. So I have more experience like working around salespeople on the oncology side of things, or even salespeople working with like family practice doctors, and and less in terms of like who is talking to pediatricians. Yeah, I like I know less about like well how much money is there to be made there. <laughs> so it might be you know it might be less you know there might, there might be fewer sales rep talking to like pediatricians for instance than mm, to oncologists. Sure. Sure. Well, I think it does have a cool impact somewhere on public health, but I do sort of feel like it's like the Instagram of genetic testing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Eleanor, I know me and a lot of my listeners, um, you know, we all have experience receiving a diagnosis. So what is it like for you actually as a genetic counselor delivering it to a family like mine? So I haven't worked in pediatric genetics, um, you know, aside from like some experience as a student. So in terms of like delivering a pediatric diagnosis, I can't speak really specifically. I can do have experience with delivering like diagnoses related to hereditary cancer risk, prenatal genetic testing results. And I, I think it's, I mean, it's hard, not in the way it's hard for patients. And it's like something that we sign up for. But, you know, you're talking to a patient about test results or test options and you get back the results and like you're always hoping for good news for them. (laughs) You know, and in in pediatrics, it's a little different because when you already know there's a problem, sometimes good news is we have part of an answer. Like we have a direction. We have something to give you, you know, in prenatal. Sometimes that's true for cancer-related testing too. In prenatal, more often, like you want things to be negative. You want to keep ruling things out. You know, I remember the first patient I gave positive Lynch syndrome test to, which is a hereditary cancer predisposition syndrome. But you know, there was a known mutation in the family. So we knew that there was a 50% chance that she would have it. But she was, you know, like a young female living in New York City, like I probably related to her more than some of my patients. Like she actually I was like, she lived like down the street from me. I saw her address. And wow. I was like, just so you know, if I see you on the subway, <laughs> I'm not like stalking you. Like I just live really close by. You know, but like I got her results back and I like, I know it's 50-50, but you know, I see her results and it's positive. I'm like, ah, oh, I like, I so want it to be negative and it's totally yeah. random, but you know, so it can, it can be hard. And like overall, I know I've had some people like ask me or say like, oh, like how hard is it? You know, especially like in prenatal to give that diagnosis. And I feel like, well, I hear different stories too about people getting that information not in a great way and like this is the information and this is the deal and I'm glad that I get to be the person that shares that with them in the way that's hopefully like as helpful and least disruptive as possible and just to be there for them like however they're feeling and and reacting but it's it's definitely something where you know, I know so much of genetics is random, but you get those results and you like really, you know, you really wish you could do something to, to make it better or to change things. And just to feel like, you know, I don't, I don't have control. Like I can't change this for you. It can be kind of hard. Yeah. No kidding. That's a heavy, that's a heavy appointment to enter for sure. Yeah. Do you have any tips for other genetic counselors who might be listening on how they can deliver this kind of news to anyone getting a diagnosis? So I think other genetic counselors could probably school me on this, especially <laughs> especially in a pediatric setting. I do think giving results in person is ideal. And in- increasingly, I think, especially in a prenatal setting, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes it's just not, it's just not practical. Like our healthcare system, the way it's set up, you know, you're calling out results and like 98% of them are going to be normal. And do you schedule every single person to come in person to come in person to get those results. Sure. I think, I mean, in general, giving information, but leaving a lot of room for a family to ask follow-up questions, you know, if it's possible in your setting to offer a follow-up appointment, give a number, an email for a family to ask follow-up questions. So often we hear from patients, and I think this is part of all genetic counselors training, is like, you know, a patient will say, you know, you get that diagnosis, and 
you shut down and you hear nothing after that, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's it. And that makes a lot of sense coming from the patient perspective, but then it's also like, well, what, what can you really offer as the genetic counselor? Like they're not maybe going to hear anything after that, or the most helpful will be some more information at a later date. And I think too, it can be like some people have a great experience with genetic counselors getting diagnoses and some like less so. And generally, I think much better getting information from a genetic counselor than another healthcare provider type. But I, I would say for someone, especially who's you know, thought about genetic testing and hesitated, and maybe they've heard stories in patient groups about having a bad experience with getting that news, just to think about like how good that experience can be in a way, because it's not going to be like the best day of your life. (laughs) Well, and maybe choosing your genetic counselor is just like anything else, right? Like maybe on your initial appointment, if you're not feeling it, find a different one. Find someone who makes you feel warmer and book, book the test with them. Totally. And we even, you know, my company, Gray Genetics, it's telehealth. But like one thing that we have that's a little different is like we have a network of genetic counselors. I'm like, you can browse profiles and choose to book an appointment with someone who you want to book an appointment with. (laughs) Yes, that's (laughs) such a good idea. Um, Which you can do for like most things in healthcare and in life, like you get to choose. But genetic counselors, there aren't that many of us. So generally, I think you get a good genetic counselor. But like if if you're referred to wherever, like the genetic counselor who happens to be at your community hospital and you happen to like not really have a good feeling about them or you don't get along or you want a different opinion, like you, you know, you can seek that out. You have to go out of your way, but you can seek that out. Yeah, that's very cool. But yeah, it can be, you know, it's just like, it's, it's something where different people can have the same experience, but remember things in a different way. And I think it's pretty normal for someone to feel like shocked or angry when they're getting this information. And sometimes that those feelings get projected onto the person who's delivering the news, which like I'd much rather someone project that onto me than onto like their spouse or like their other children or (laughs) or whatever else. That's kind of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but just for people to, you know, for people to keep in mind if they've heard like this wasn't great. And it's just like, well, it's not, it's not like the day your child was born. It's not like your wedding day. This is not, this is like, it's not going to be great in in some ways. Yeah. Uh, So have you actually ever had an experience where you did give someone a diagnosis and the result was uplifting or relieving in any way for them? I think in, with hereditary cancer, Yes, to a, to a certain extent, it'd be a little, little bit of an exaggeration to say like uplifting and relieving. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. But when, when someone has like a really like a strong pattern of cancer in the family and they're really looking for information to help guide their medical care and to feel like, and they have enough information ahead of time about how actionable that information is, it can feel like, great, now I can do something with this. But I think for most people, it really takes time. Like it's, it's, I think a lot of people do feel uplifted and relieved, but maybe it's months or years after they get that information. Like initially, maybe it's shock, disbelief. What does this mean? I can't believe this. Like the fact that like, I can't change this. And you kind of go through all those stages where you get to a place where you're, before you get to a place where you're really grateful for that information and seeing, seeing the positive side. So when and why and how does someone contact you? Like, are you the person that someone can go to on Gray Genetics, pick their genetic counselor, tell them their concerns, and then you order genetic testing? Can you do that as a genetic counselor? 
So in most states, genetic counselors can't order testing on their own without a physician. In some states, they can. Genetic counselors are licensed in about half of states at this point and increasingly. Yeah. And increasing. And part of the idea behind that is that, you know, besides all of the licensure hassle work and fee, hassle and fees and <laughs> paperwork, that hopefully that goes along toward better recognition from providers, better yes. reimbursement for services, and all those are kind of long-term goals. So increasingly as licensure passes, being able to order tests is part of those licensure bills, but it does really depend on the states. And in most states, that's not something that we clearly are able to do. It's kind of, it's kind of a gray area actually. How fitting. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Pennsylvania is the only state where they have a licensure law and ex- it explicitly says that genetic counselors cannot order testing. And then in a few, it says that we can. And then in some states, it doesn't say one way or the other. But generally, generally, we order under a physician. So the ideal situation is if someone is interested in testing, they're connected to a physician who's willing to order testing or to have a genetic counselor order under their name so that you already have that information coming in. And, but it's a, a, a physician who maybe admits like they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to genetics. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the ideal way to do it. You know, for a pediatric situation, like the ideal is always to see a medical geneticist in person, have a physical exam. That's really ideal. But if you live, you know, let's say you live three hours from the nearest geneticist and it's just not practical or there's a long waiting list or you went and saw someone a couple of years ago, but you have some additional follow up questions. I think that's where, you know, a telehealth appointment just with a genetic counselor can be really valuable to to review some information. Yeah, it's very cool. Are you allowed to do it in New York? Are you allowed to order testing? To order testing. So New York does not have genetic counseling licensure. So not clearly. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I think then it's like if you ask different laboratories, it's, it's interesting like how they deal with this too. Like I know one laboratory that was like, well, initially we weren't accepting orders from genetic counsel, And then they just decided to not try to police it and to just kind of like let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> sure. So, but I always, and I mean, the tricky thing is, you know, it's a hassle to have to involve a doctor. You know, I think genetic counselors should be able to order testing, but at the same time, it kind of goes back to these results should become part of someone's plan for medical care. So a doctor really should be looped in. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a bit of a hassle, but you know, ideally a doctor is part of this part of this process anyway, because genetic counselors, we don't we don't provide medical advice, we don't medically manage patients. We're gonna talk about risks, options, benefits, specialists who someone should see depending on a diagnosis. So we can be helpful, but we're we're not physicians. We're not going to be, you know, providing medical management for for a child. So it is important to have a physician involved at, at whatever point. Yes. Um, I think with the more prevalent this becomes, though, I think that it's definitely going to be uh, more available for genetic counselors to do this, which is cool because, I mean, everyone's busy and waiting lists are long and there should be more people able to order this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of I mean, it's funny because, you know, genetic counselors mostly like the simplified thing is like we can't order testing. I mean, it's also ironic because in a hospital setting, when you see a genetic counselor, you know, I'm working part time, like kind of moonlighting under gray genetics at a, at a medical center now. And, you know, it's like I'm like, quote unquote, ordering testing all day just under a physician who I 
barely met, you know, who doesn't really know what I'm ordering, because that's just how it works in a hospital setting is it's sure. ostensibly a doctor's ordering it, but act, actually, it's always a genetic counselor ordering. <laughs> but then, you know, when you go beyond that, I think that's part of why direct-to-consumer testing has become so appealing is it's so frustrating to navigate the medical system and you see a test online and we've kind of leapfrogged the physicians who aren't offering testing and don't understand it, the genetic counselors who do, but who can't order testing, who, and nobody's heard of us most of the time. <laughs> and then you go to like a company that has a huge marketing budget and they're offering a test and it's like, click, click, credit card, done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ugh, we'd be so lucky. <laughs> so I know there is a bill in front of Congress right now to make a lot of the research y'all would access in preparing to give a diagnosis like this available to the public. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on whether you think that's a good thing and maybe some benefits and downfalls of doing that. Yeah. So a ca big caveat, I don't know that much about this bill. Um, we were talking a little bit before the interview and I was like, yeah, I've read a bit about this. You know, this is like totally familiar, but it's not something that like I'm, I'm like very well informed on. None of us are. We've just all kind of been introduced to it in the last week or so. And there's a lot of talk about it in my community. Okay. So, I mean, in reading through like what you sent me to like zero embargo taxpayer access, you know, I've definitely heard a lot about these issues and I, I definitely think they're important issues. And I think, you know, the idea, there's just a lot of frustration, you know, like outside the you know, community of parents with kids with special needs, just like in, in medicine and science, scientific research in general, just like you have these peer reviewed articles and so many are behind a paywall, especially when they're part of like more reputable journals and it's so expensive, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the, the prices are really, I think the prices are set to be something that makes sense for like a Columbia university, someone where it's like, well, this is the cost of doing business and that's kind of the business model. So that's really frustrating, you know, and it's hard when you're working in something like science. It's like, well, don't we want everyone to have access to all of this to do their work? And like, do you have to be part of a research institution that happens to have a subscription to all of this? And even for those like research institutions, it just gets really expensive. But I think like the other part to that is like, well, who is funding this research? And it's not a really simple answer, but often if you think about like, okay, this, this whatever ends up getting published, Someone spent a lot of time working on that, and often they might have some funding from a grant, like the an NIH grant, the National Institutes of Health. And well, where does the money for the NIH come from? Well, from taxpayers. <laughs> and even if you just have someone that's working, you know, a professor at a university, and maybe they're they put in a lot of time, and it wasn't grant funded, but it came from their salary. But like, well, where does their salary come from? And maybe it's partly endowments, but maybe, well, like there's public funding that goes to universities. So then that kind of comes back to taxpayer dollars. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's I think it's it's really fair to argue that, you know, we're all paying for this research and it's something that's like incredibly valuable. And if anything, we should be investing more in research. But then it's ironic that, you know, there's these paywalls. Yeah. And maybe, you know, it's like I haven't really heard from, you know, and I'm sure they have some carefully thought out answer, <laughs> you know, the publishers, you know, besides like wanting to stay in business, you know, like what, how much they, they add to, to the process. But even, you know, the peer reviewed articles is kind of like the standard in the scientific community where you have peers that are actually looking at your manuscripts. But like, like my understanding is that, 
you know, with peer review, a journal is reaching out to, you know, other experts in your field to get feedback, but that's, that's kind of like a courtesy professional thing. It's not like they're getting paid to do that. Sure. <laughs> so the publishers may have like some good retort that I'm not aware of. It definitely seems like it should be more, uh, more publicly available, the results of all those studies. And then I think the, you know, the potential downside or just something to think about, especially, you know, if you're a parent who's like staying on top of all of this and like trying to research your kid's genetic condition and like getting frustrated by paywalls is, um, you know, even with publicly available information, just that it's easy, I think, especially without as much like scientific background to misinterpret what you see in an article or to kind of make an assumption or a leap. You know, you see you see one article and it's really exciting. And especially if you have a, a personal connection to it, you want it to be like, this is going to make a difference for my kid today. Yeah. Whereas more often the standard for like a change in clinical care is like, okay, that's one study. That's a small study. You know, this, all studies have their weaknesses, like how well was the study designed? What were like the statistical, you know, what did they do in terms of like statistics? And like some of that too, like I, like all genetic counselors, like have some training and ability to read like any of those articles and to have some critical assessment of a study, but like, I'm not a statistician and like, I am not a biochemist. So there's, there's like different critical views that people can bring to an article that like the average parent researching or even I aren't aren't going to have looking at that you know but usually we're wanting multiple studies showing similar results and then that's like a first step toward maybe having a change in in clinical care which I think can be really hard for parents who want more help for their children now today. Yeah, I you can definitely get down in a rabbit hole, obviously, both of us. I mean, I've been reading studies over the years of, you know, anything CTNMB1, and I just kind of laugh sometimes. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, this is nonsensical to me, and I'm reading it like I'm going to learn something so awesome. I mean, I still do it, but I'm like, I have no idea what this says. I think it comes back to kind of someone's personality type. If you find it interesting and engaging and you're fine with not understanding all of it and you're like, I'm glad some basic research is being done. There's obviously smart people who are aware of this gene. <laughs> then great. But it's like if you're sitting there and it's like driving you crazy, then it's then it's not healthy, you know? <laughs> You should do an episode on this subject, Eleanor. You probably have some very cool connections that could delve into that a little deeper. That'd be really interesting to hear. Talking with parents driving themselves crazy or researchers no. or both? <laughs> no, the the accessing the information and that bill that's in front of Congress for sure. That, that would be good. So we have like besides Patient Stories podcast, I did recently start a second podcast called Genotypecast. It's supposed to be it's, it's just like topical, certain like news related things in genetics. Oh and this gosh. is like, it's supposed to be like 10 to 15 minutes talking to a genetic counselor about something targeted. So I, that actually would be like a perfect fit. I just need to find a GC who's like all about this bill and knows all about it <laughs> and interview, interview them. That's a great idea. I can't even believe you started another podcast. I'm going to put it on my <laughs> list, but geez. Uh, okay. Well, I just have one one more question, really. I just kind of want to know what your next, you know, what's your goal for gray genetics from here on out? And now that you're adding genotype cast, like what do you have planned for the next year or so? 
my goal for gray genetics, they're pretty like long-term modest goals in that I think, you know, like I, with gray genetics, I've really tried to create a platform for genetic counselors to offer their services. We don't take insurance because it's just something where genetic counseling isn't reimbursed well enough and insurance is so difficult and mind-numbing to navigate that that's not practical. So at this point, it's like it's something where people do have to pay out of pocket. But my so my goal, like very long-term goal, like not over the next year, but maybe like three to five years is to have it be something where people feel like there's a value. You know, you spend money on like a direct-to-consumer test result or you spend money on a stroller where like maybe it's, it's mm-hmm. like worth talking to someone about genetic information um, or getting a second opinion. And then like during that time, you know, ideally there's more changes with licensure laws and with reimbursement and like we get a new president and then we have Medicare for all. And like, <laughs> you yeah. know, like the, the payment structure totally changes. Like that's my dream. So that's like one, that's a goal for gray genetics. We do contract with healthcare providers, practices. So, you know, there's potential for us to work with patients that way too. And with genotype cast, you know, what I really wanted was I love sharing patient stories through the patient stories podcast, but it's, you know, it's meant to be very kind of psychosocial, focused on a patient's experience. And with Genotypecast, I really wanted something where there's always different genetics things coming up in the news and something where we're not talking about someone's story and someone's feelings, but it's like, and also to get an audience of people who maybe, maybe they work in healthcare, maybe they work in biotech, but you know, they're not the target audience for like personal stories about individuals, but they would love to listen to like 10 minutes to explain something related to whatever in genetics got a lot of coverage in the New York Times like that week or something like that. And then part of that too is just to elevate genetic counselors as professionals. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Like I like to listen to like the Slate Political Gab Fest. I listen to a lot of Slate podcasts, but just different podcasts where there's, you know, you have people who are like journalists who focus on news in certain areas or like film critics or book critics. And they have like a culture gab fest. And I really enjoy listening to people who are just like really steeped in a general area talk about something, but just realizing like, realize there's there was nothing that existed like that where you increasingly genetic counselors will be mentioned sometimes in news articles related to genetics and they might get a quote from a genetic counselor but there's no like podcast where a genetic counselor is talking about like what happened in the news this week the way you would get for other other areas of news so to just kind of create that space and then the concept (laughs) is supposed to be this is 10 minutes we're just chatting like we would be chewing genetic counselors and we record it and then because of how genetic counselors tend to be (laughs) as I pitch that idea like often the response is well I'm not the person who knows most in the world about (laughs) it and it's partly a genetic counselor's personality type where we like to be very thorough and it's partly I think we're mostly women (laughs) I think men are more likely to be like oh yeah I know all about and I was like well (laughs) you know it's like this is like a 10 minute chat we're not doing in-depth research so that's the the concept is like a quick chat and I was like people don't want to hear us talk about this for two hours like people are interested in like 10 minutes worth so Well, I'm really excited because, yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of those uh, DNA podcasts or genetic podcasts can get pretty dry. So I'm looking forward to yours. Yeah, for for me, too. It's just like I I don't want 30 minutes of this, but like 10 minutes. Yes, (laughs) totally. 
my, my husband fits into that category of like, you know, when I started patient stories, he would he would listen, losing my mother providing for my children, like, no, thanks. Like he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't want to hear about like sad things. And like, that's sure. fine. You know, I'm like, I'm sure. glad I married someone who's like, very different from me. Um, but you know, he'll, he's like 10 minutes related to like something in genetics, that's not like emotionally heavy, like he's totally up for that. Yeah. Yeah. These will be exciting episodes to share, too, because they are quick. And, they, you know, these are topics that we pass around in the rare disease community all the time on Facebook, you know, for, hey, read this article, check this out. So it'll be it'll be really cool to kind of get your perspective on it. Yeah. And if you have like I love this idea for um the let's see, what is it called again? The zero embargo taxpayer access. But, yeah, if you have other ideas or other people listening have ideas, um, the new podcast is called Genotypecast. And, you know, we have a link right on there or you can email podcast at greatgenetics.com. But like, you know, we have a link in every episode. There's like something in the show notes that's like, is there a topic you want us to talk about? You know, we love suggestions for things. Um, it doesn't have to be something recent in the news. It could just be, you know, some topic that comes up a lot where there's confusion. And instead of doing like a two-hour lecture, try to have something that's like super bite-sized and targeted to answer that one question. Sweet. I think a lot of parents are going to take you up on that. So that's awesome. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, Eleanor. It was so good talking to you again. Yeah, great talking to you too, Effie. I hope to have you have you back on. Like now I've been doing the Patient Stories podcast for ah, how long? Well, just long enough to where I think it'll start to be fun to kind of circle back to people. And I think people will be interested in hearing like, how are things going now? Like whether, you know, yes. whether you want to do that in, in a month or in like two years, like I, I think it'll be fun to bring people back onto the show. Yes, I would be honored. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. My pleasure. You have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye, Effie. Bye. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. <laughs>